No, no. Yes. Okay. Uh, first, just two short remarks. I cannot restrain, make, uh, sorry, yes. I cannot refrain making them. They are not substantial, but I think. First, this uh, last uh, vicious question of Bruno, no? Was it Bruno? What happens with 1%? Mm. Do you know that in Stalin, you find an excellent slip of tongue which deals precisely with this, I quote it often. Uh, it's a book, History of Soviet Communist Party, written by Stalin himself, of course. No? And uh, there he describes a certain, I don't know which Congress in 28, and he said it's precisely this problem. He said, listen carefully, he says, attacking the Bukharin right-wing deviation, whatever, that the delegates of the Congress, uh, uh, with a large majority of votes, unanimously rejected the oppositional platform. You know, that's the moment Bruno was aiming at. Frank, 99 percent, sorry, uh, Frank. Yeah, Frank, yeah, yeah. Uh, not you, you're a bad guy here, okay. No, <laughs> no, but you know what I want to say? This is a very, very important question, and it cannot be simply dismissed as Stalin's perverted totalitarian reasoning. You have the same, and I'm totally for it, in one of the great moments of French Revolution. When does French Revolution really become an event? Not when, if they did it ever, I don't know. The third estate say, says the, the first two estates has too much power. We want our part also in dividing the common piece of cake. But when they say, we are the people, we, as a third estate, stand for all of the people they are only. So what I'm saying is that there is a problem here, and I think it's a brutal problem, because what you cannot solve, it doesn't necessarily mean terror. And typically, my Stalinist right? remember when you uh, enumerated the invariants of communism, of Badiou, mm -hmm. I noticed a conspicuous absence. For him, one of the four is terror. And you, instead of terror, get lost in multiplicities. This, that, all the, you know, like many good things must think the one thing which, okay. But sorry, so again, there is a problem here. It doesn't work that you will say all of a sudden, to put it in mouse terms, uh, the antagonism with the enemies of people will turn into an antagonism within people. They will simply become... There is a problem here. Second, before I go to the substantial point, I like how you mentioned Sartre. Anti-communists are dogs, because we all know that Alain Badiou got into trouble with his book on Sarkozy, where he played on Rat, Ratman. So maybe, you know, in this wonderful Chinese way, Year of the Dragon, we should write a history of our struggles, like after years of the dog, years of the rat, you know, like the, the, the name we use. Now, slightly, uh, slightly, I'm sorry to tell you, more serious points. First, individualism and so on. But isn't here that every authentic Marxist, communist, whatever, has a clear answer that bourgeois individualism is the wrong one? Not in any uh, authentic ultra sense, but what is this bourgeois individualism? It's all conditioned by same publicity mechanisms and so on. They are all the same. My God, what, what you get in bourgeois individualism is precisely an, I claim, unprecedented uniformization. So we should, uh, okay, that, now let me go on 
with uh, more, uh, another more problematic point, which is crucial. What is happening today? Was this a slip of tongue, or did you mean it consciously subverting Altisser? Because, I'm sorry, I'm like a secret policeman. I wrote down <laughs> your exact words. According to Altisser, capitalism interpolates subjects as... I inverted it on purpose. You inverted it, yes. On because, purpose, again, yes. I think that this is maybe the best definition of what I see as biopolitics, that you are n we are no longer today primarily interpolated in this great Baduyan sense for a cause, for an idea. It's just you enjoy your life, and usually this is put it in some way of enlightened, what I ironically call enlightened neo-Buddhist hedonism, no, realize your potentials, be what truly are. So, and then this should be regulated. Okay, now comes the, the big, uh, now comes the truly big point. I still think what uh, some other people were aiming at here, you know, this uh, Jacques Rancière distinction between police politics. I find it a little bit problematic because I think the, the price Rancière pays is he comes for me all too close to seeing an authentic protest as a kind of aesthetic spectacle, aesthetic blurring. Of, for me, the way I would read in a very brutal, plumpest denken way, uh, your, was it you? Some, okay, someone used, used this formula that uh, event exists in its consequences. No, that screw le politique. Le poli pol political event, its truth is how it changes la police. How, you know, like what interests me is how the day after, when, policing goods uh, refer, uh, returns, how things change at that level. Now, I'm sorry, just the last crucial point, I don't want to go into that, fascism, populism, and so on. I agree which, that there can be clear distinctions made. That uh, Susan's question, which is crucial, like uh, in other words, you put it very brutally and I like it, like what does this all help amount to calling this category of desire? Well, my answer would have been here a parallel with Marxism. Isn't Marxist theory that we do have collective forms of willing, we can call them uh, whatever we want, desire, drive, I will not go into that consciously, which are collective. Isn't the whole point of Marx, of a, the Marxist point of a capitalist as an agent of capital is that, okay, privately that Capitalist can be a humanitarian, a sadist, a good charity guy, but his very being part of the capitalist machine involves a certain non-psychological form of willing, desiring, I consciously don't go into it, which precisely shouldn't be reduced to private properties. I think this use is legitimate. It's not Jungian bullshit. We are not talking about collective unconscious. In the same way, when we say there were some paranoiac mechanisms in Stalinism, it has absolutely nothing to do with saying Stalin was a paranoiac. It's clear if you read the biography of so-called Stalin's henchmen that they were quite different. One was clearly a hysteric, another an obsessional, blah, blah. It doesn't matter. The collective space has its own dynamic. And again, in the same way, for me, this is how I would prefer to 
squeeze out of your very difficult, you know, because let me make a crucial point concerning, you know, because what I suspect in the background of your, is this old reproach, you didn't mean it, but this would be even more brutal version than yours, that isn't psychoanalysis with its categories of desire, pathology, blah, blah, basically describing individual pathological phenomena. Do we have the right to extend them onto social? Of course, there are vulgar examples which don't work. Like, I am doubtful of this idea, you know, religion is a collectivized obsessional neurosis or what. My solution for me is the following one. Yes, but this gap between individual and social is always inscribed into an individual itself. It's within you. How, for example, in order to be for me, which obviously, as you can see in five seconds, I'm not, but in order for me to be a normal person, uh, I have to relate in a sense to what Lacan would have called big other as part of my own identity. You know, and a simple example, if I do something that is wrong, it's not enough, you're still a psychotic or whatever, when you say, the majority is not doing things like that. You become a human being when you say on one doesn't do it. And this one is a certain level of collective objectification, which is not the same thing as majority. To put it very clearly, even if most of the people violate it, it's still an objectified norm, one doesn't do it. And this norm is part of my subjectivity. If I am not able to see this as subjective, uh, objective norm, then I'm a psychotic. That's the definition of a psychotic. He thinks precisely that behind the big others, as subjective fields, there is a secret master, another will which really... So I will stop now, but you see your point. At this level, I would look for an answer. Well, I, I think we're, well, uh, we're going to... But I let her... We are all anti-feminist, but we must conceal it <laughs> no, no, precisely I, by pretending no, I'm, I'm that we are. I'm, he consulted, yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay, let's break for five minutes and come back for a slide work. But, uh, and I was thinking about, you know, what question you could ask of Slavoj that would stumble him, you know? So I would ask, of, well, yeah, you know, you're, you have all these very interesting ideas and you're a very, you know, energized thinker, but when are you going to publish your first book? <laughs> now, the question I'm asking you after he do is that, you know, tomorrow you will asking, be asking a certain question. Who has seen him? Who was the last to see him alive, you know? <laughs> <laughs> Here, you know. Uh, I just confirmed my previous proposal, start to gather money for cigarettes for him and buy this type of cigarettes which can also function, can be lighted in freezing cold in certain eastern parts of Russia, you know? <laughs> okay, sorry, let me do it. First, let me nonetheless begin with saying how glad I am to be here. I think, even if it was not full, maybe precisely because of that, this was a good conference. Finally, some serious work was done. We break out of this falsely populist mood of you must propose some formulas. It was possible. 
to do it. What I especially liked is the spirit of, you know, me and Etienne, those couple of Hegelian exchanges, because if at a certain point in the middle of a conference of communism, you are not able to say or to practice the attitude of, well, my God, this is so interesting, fuck communism. I want to talk about Hegel. If you are not ready to do this, you are not a communist. You're a petit bourgeois guy who feels guilty and has to, you know, push him in. So let me begin. I would like to begin by reading you a poem. Now, this may around. I'm a well-known partisan of Plato. He was right, poets out, but nonetheless. It's a well-known poem by Baudelaire, Stranger, L'Etranger. Tell its poem in prose. Tell me, enigmatic man, whom do you love best? Your father, your mother, your sister, or your brother? Answer, I have neither father, nor mother, nor sister, nor brother. Your friends. Now you use a word whose meaning I have never known. Your country, I do not know in what latitude it lies. Beauty, I could indeed love her, goddess and immortal. Gold, I hate it as you hate God. Then, what do you love, extraordinary stranger? I love the clouds, the clouds that pass up there, up there, the wonderful clouds. My thesis is pure plumpes denken, extremely vulgar reading. Does this poem not provide a portrait of a fanatical internet aficionado? Alone in front of the screen, he has neither father nor mother, neither country nor God. All he needs is a digital cloud to which his internet device is linked. This wonderful new world of clouds is, however, only one side of the story which reads like one of the well-known doctor jokes on first the good news, then the bad news. Users are thus accessing programs and software files that are kept far away in climate-controlled rooms with thousands of computers. Or, to quote a propaganda text on cloud computing, details are abstracted from consumers who no longer have the need for expertise in or control over the technological infrastructure in the cloud that supports them, end of quote. Two words, I think, are telltale here, abstraction and control. In order to manage a cloud, there needs to be a monitoring system which controls its functioning, and this system is by definition hidden from a user. The paradox is thus that the more the small item smartphone or a tiny portable PC, I hold in my hand is personalized, easy to use, transparent in its functioning, the more the entire setup has to rely on the work being done elsewhere, in a vast circuit of machines which coordinate the user's experience. The more this experience is non-alienated, the more it is regulated and controlled by an alienated network. This, of course, holds for any complex technology. A user has no idea of how a remote control TV works. However, the additional twist here is that it is not just technology, but also the choice and accessibility of content which are controlled. That is to say, the formation of computer clouds is accompanied by the process of so-called vertical, vertical, uh, vertical sorry, integration. 
everything is accessible but mediated through a company which owns it all, software and hardware, data and computers. Apple doesn't only sell iPhones and iPads, it also owns iTunes from where users buy music, films, games. Apple recently made a deal with Rupert Murdoch so that the news on their cloud will come exclusively from Rupert Murdoch's media. Global access is more and more grounded in the almost monopolistic privatization of the cloud providing the access. The more an individual user has access to universal public space, the more this space is privatized. Partisans of the openness of, uh, of uh, the Internet like to criticize China for its attempts to control Internet access. But are we all not becoming like China, where our cloud functions in a way not dissimilar to the Chinese state? To grasp this new form of privatization, one should critically transform Marxist conceptual apparatus. Because of his, Marxist, neglect of the social dimension of what he calls general intellect, social field of knowing, Marx didn't emphasize the possibility of the privatization of the general intellect itself. You know, Marx, I think when he mentions general intellect, is at his best, but at the same time at his worst. At his best, he saw something new emerging at his worst because he almost gets caught there, almost, not quite, in a kind of worst economistic determinism. The idea is once knowledge becomes the main factor in the production of wealth, capitalism somehow becomes inoperative, will collapse by itself. But precisely, it doesn't. This is what is at the core of the struggle for intellectual property today. This is why exploitation is more and more, appears more and more in the form of rent. Post-industrial capitalism can be characterized by the becoming rent of profit. And I claim uh, Negri and Hart admit this, as it was nicely emphasized yesterday by Etienne Balibar. But I have nonetheless a critical point to make here. They don't emphasize enough how, for this very reason, direct authority is more and more needed. It is needed to impose the arbitrary legal conditions for extracting rent, conditions which are no longer spontaneously generated, generated by market. Perhaps therein resides the fundamental contradiction of today's postmodern capitalism. While its logic is deregulatory, anti-statal, nomadic, deterritorializing, etc., all these features on account of which Hart and Negri claim that, wait a minute, capitalism is practically, sorry, communism is practically here. We are already there, we just have to throw off the, the, the capitalist frame. The key thing, the tendency of the becoming rent of profit signals, I claim, the strengthening role of the state whose not only regulatory function is more and more all present. Dynamic deterritorialization coexists with and relies on more and more authoritarian interventions of the state 
and its legal and other apparatuses. What one can discern at the horizon of our historical becoming is thus a society in which personal lib libertarianism and hedonism coexist with a complex web of regulatory state mechanisms. Far from disappearing, the state is strengthening today. For this reason, today more than ever, one should bear in mind that communism begins with what Kant called the public use of reason, with thinking with the egalitarian universality of thought. When, I'm sorry if you, I mention it, regressing as you would, when Paul says that from a Christian standpoint, there are no men and women, no Jews and Greeks, he thereby claims, to put it in Alain Badiou's terms, that ethnic roots, national identity, and so on, are not a category of truth. Or, to put it in Kantian terms, when we reflect upon our ethnic roots, we engage in a private use of reason, constrained by contingent dogmatic presupposition. presuppositions. We act as immature individuals, not as free human beings who dwell in the dimension of the universality of reason. For Kant, you know the paradox. What he calls public space of the world civil society, designates the paradox of the universal singularity, of singular subjects who, in a kind of short circuit, bypassing the mediation of the particular, directly participate in the universal. This is what Kant, in the famous passage of his What is Enlightenment, means by public as opposed to private. Private is not one's individual life as opposed to communal ties but the very communal institutional order of one's particular identification, while public is free exercise of reason. So again, precisely public state apparatuses, ideological institutions, all that Althusser vaguely refers as ideological and other state apparatuses, this not private life is for Kant the very core of private use of Reason. Now, of course, you will tell me, <coughs> am I not here too naive? Didn't I take the basic lesson of Marxist criticism of Kant? That is to say, is this Kantian couple of public versus private use of reason not accompanied by what, in today's terms, we can call the suspension of the symbolic efficiency or performative power of the public use of reason? Kant, as you probably know, does not reject the standard formula of obedience, don't think, obey. He does not reject it by asserting its direct revolutionary opposite. Don't just obey, follow what others are telling you, think with your own head. His formula is think and obey, or obey but think. That is to say, think publicly in the free use of your universal reason and obey privately as part of a hierarchic machinery of power. In short, thinking freely does not legitimize me to do anything. The most I can do when my public use of reason brings me to see weaknesses and injustices of the existing order is to make an appeal to the ruler for reforms. One can go here even a step further and claim, like Chesterton, that the abstract, inconsequent, 
freedom to think, to doubt, actively prevents actual freedom. A quote from Chesterton, we may say broadly that free thought is the best of all the safeguards against freedom. Managed in a modern style, the emancipation of the slave's mind is the best way of preventing the emancipation of the slave. Teach him, the slave, to worry about whether he wants to be free and he will not free himself." End of quote. But I want now to defend Kant. Is the subtraction of thinking from acting, the suspension of the social performative efficiency of thinking, literally, really, as clear and unequivocal as that? Is Kant's secret strategy, intended or not, here, not like the well-known trick in court battles, when a lawyer makes a statement in front of the jury for which he knows the judge will find it inadmissible and order the jury to ignore it, which of course is impossible since the damage has already been done. So is the withdrawal from efficiency in the public use of reason not also a subtraction which opens up a place for some new social practice? It is all too easy to point out the obvious difference between the Kantian public use of reason and the Marxist revolutionary class consciousness. The first is neutral, disengaged. The second is partial and fully engaged. However, I claim the proletarian position can be defined precisely as the point at which the public use of reason becomes in itself practical efficient without regressing into privacy of the private use of reason, since the position from which it is exercised is that, to use Jacques Rancière's often referred to terms, is that of the part of no part of the social body. It's excess which directly stands for universality. And what happens with the Stalinist reduction of the Marxist theory to the servant of the party state, it's precisely, again, the reduction of the public use of reason to the private use of reason. What then is this public use of reason, which today is maybe threatened more than ever? All the university reforms that we are getting in Europe and around, in Europe we have a nightmare called Bologna High Education Reform. I think this is an insult to the great city of Bologna, to Bologna spaghetti and all the great things we <laughs> refer to it. Namely, it's literally an attempt to streamline education to serve, as they say, social needs. They want to change us into experts. Or I was in France some time ago at a debate and the guy defending Bologna reform told me, referring to those cars burning, this was years ago in the suburbs of Paris, look, here it is we need educated people. We need a psychologist to explain to us the mob psychology and how we can disperse the protests. We need urbanists to tell us how to change the disposition of the suburbs to make more difficult, whatever, whatever. <coughs> but is then the public use of reason just the name for a critical attitude? Here things are complex. There is no lack of anti-capitalism today. We are even witnessing an overload of the critique of the horrors of capitalism. Books, newspaper in-depth investigations, TV reports are everywhere on companies ruthlessly polluting our environment, 
reports on corrupted bankers who continue to get fed bonuses while their banks have to be saved by public money, of sweatshops where children work overtime, and so on. There is, however, a catch to all this overflow of critique. What is, as a rule, not questioned in this critique, ruthless as it may appear, is the democratic liberal frame of fighting against these excesses. The explicit or implicit goal is to democratize capitalism, to extend democratic control onto economy through the pressure of the public media, parliamentary inquiries, harsher laws, honest police investigations, etc. but never questioning the democratic institutional frame of the state of law. This remains the sacred cow even for the most radical forms of this kind of ethical anti-capitalism. It is here I claim that Marx's key insight remains valid, today perhaps more than ever. For Marx, the question of freedom should not be located primarily into the political sphere proper. Does the country have free elections? Are the judges independent? Is the press free from political pressures? Are human rights respected? And similar lists of questions that different independent or not so independent Western institutions apply when they want to pronounce a judgment on a country. The key to actual freedom rather resides in the apolitical network, apparently apolitical of course, of social relations from the market to the family, where the change needed if we want an actual change is not a political reform, but a change in what appears as apolitical social relations of production, family relations, and so on. We do not vote about who owns what, about relations in a factory. All this is left to processes outside the sphere of the political. And it is illusory to expect that one can effectively change things by extending democracy into this sphere say, by organizing democratic banks under people's control. It is in this precise sense, and in this sense only, I know Alain Badiou is playing with fire here, that I think he was right in his claim, provocative, I'm not the only crazy guy who likes to make provocative statements, that today the name of our ultimate enemy is not capitalism, empire, exploitation, or whatever, but democracy. It is the democratic illusion the acceptance of democratic mechanisms, the way they are defined today by our predominant ideology, as the ultimate frame of every change which prevents a radical change of capitalist relations. Next step, closely linked to this defetishization of democracy is the defetishization of its negative counterpart, violence. But you recently proposed the formula of defensive violence. One should renounce violence, the violent taking over of the state power, as the principal modus operandi of emancipatory activity, and rather focus on building free domains, spaces at the distance from state power, subtracted from its reign. Like one of his examples is the early solidarity in Poland. So we should only resort to violence when the state itself uses violence to crush and subdue this liberated zone. It should be defensive violence. The problem, I think, with this formula is that it relies 
on the deeply problematic distinction between the normal functioning of the state apparatuses and the excessive violent exercise of state violence. I still cling to one of the fundamental Marxist theses that the peaceful social life in capitalist everyday functioning of things is itself sustained by violence, that it is an expression and effect of the temporary victory or predominance of one class, the ruling one, over the others in the struggle. What this means is that one cannot separate violence from the very existent, existence of state. From the standpoint of those who are subordinated and oppressed, the very existence of a state is a fact of violence. In this sense, I'm ready to go here to the end, every violence of the oppressed against the ruling class and its state is ultimately defensive. If we do not concede this point, we, volens nolens, normalize the state and accept that its violence is only a matter of contingent excesses. This is why, as my friend Udi Aloni put it, the standard liberal motto apropos violence, this is the position uh, most elaborated, among others, by the well-known liberal theorist uh, Simon Critchley, uh, that violence is sometimes necessary, sometimes we have to resort to it, but it is never legitimate. You know, it's this liberal worrying. Oh my God, it's horrible, we have to fight back, but we are doing something horrible, we should just do it as an extreme option. I claim we have to turn this around. From the radical emancipatory perspective, for the oppressed, violence is always legitimate but never necessary. That would be my formula. It's always legitimate since it's by definition defensive. It is never necessary because it is always a matter of strategic consideration to use violence against uh, an enemy or not. Let me give you a concrete, brutal example. Uh, here on Wall Street, I totally agree that any violence in the sense of physical additional violence, I don't know, breaking uh, shop windows, attacking, would be totally catastrophic. But for example, you remember when there were, what is it now, one year and a half, two years ago, the, not the riots recent, but a year ago, the student demonstrations in London, where they did break some windows of, uh, uh, of, uh, of, 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 of exclusive shops, I claim it was absolutely justified. Because let it be clear, without that minimum of violence, where, again, I mean, practically no one was even hurt, but it was violence, the, the protest wouldn't have the shocking echo it had. It would be something for the footnotes of the second page of the newspaper and so on and so on. So again, of course we should be extremely careful in the sense of I'm not advocating, oh, let's just kill people or whatever. But I'm saying is that nonetheless, I want to have all the options free. It's a matter of strategic uh, uh, reasoning. What does this mean? Not to glorify violence. I'm sorry if you know this quote, but it's so beautiful that I want to repeat it. I 
return, you will really hate me to my beloved Chesterton, who a century ago in his book, I think it's the, the novel, The Man Who Was Thursday, ironically proposed to, to a state to install a, quote, special corps of policemen, policemen who are also philosophers. Quote, it's a wonderful idea. The work of the philosophical policeman is at once bolder and more subtle than that of the ordinary detective. The ordinary detective goes to coffee houses to arrest thieves. We go to artistic tea parties to detect pessimists. The ordinary detective discovers from a diary that a crime has been committed. We discover from a book of sonnets that a crime will be committed. We have to trace the origin of those dreadful thoughts that drive men on at last to intellectual fanaticism and intellectual crime." End of quote. Now, you may laugh at this, but would thinkers as different as Karl Popper, Theodor Adorno, Emmanuel Levinas, would they also not subscribe to a slightly changed version of this idea where actual political crime is called totalitarianism, and the philosophical crime is mostly condensed in the notion of totality. For all these thinkers, more or less, a straight road leads from the philosophical notion of totality to political totalitarianism, as they used to say it when I was young, from Plato to Nato to NATO. <laughs> and the task of philosophical police is to discover from a book of Plato's dialogues or a treatise on social contract by Rousseau that a political crime, gulag or whatever, will be committed. The ordinary policeman goes to secret organizations to arrest terrorists, revolutionaries. The political policeman goes to symposia like ours here to detect proponents of totality. The ordinary anti-terrorist policeman tries to detect those preparing to blow up buildings and bridges, the philosophical policeman tries to detect those about to deconstruct the religious and moral foundations of our societies. It's a nice idea. Don't laugh at it too much. This is how things effectively function. But I think, nonetheless, there is a faithful limitation in what Chesterton is saying here. It's a Hegelian point. What Chesterton fails to perceive is that the universalized crime that he projects into lawless modern philosophy, like he says that, for example, that a thief still basically respects property. He just wants to, re re to redistribute it a little bit. No, like, I want your car, but still, we should own cars and so on. It's just that I want yours, no? Uh, that uh, the... The philosopher is much more dangerous because she really wants to, wants to abolish the very institution of uh, property, the totality of civilized life. What I think Chesterton doesn't get is that this universalized crime already exists in the guise of the existing rule of law. What does this mean? This point was made nicely by a guy who at least at that point, was a communist, and I here speak as an old uh, Wagnerian, Richard Wagner. 
Alain told me a wonderful thing when we discovered that we both like Richard Wagner. He told me he had to oppress this love for decades, and he told me that now he understood what does it mean for an American gay who had to conceal this to come out, no? That now the fashion, our intellectual, is for leftist Wagnerians to, to, to come out like, like gay. And he did something wonderful. It is, and I will show what it means for today, it's an elementary communist operation. Where? In, Wagner did this in his draft of the play Jesus of Nazareth. He wrote it somewhere between late 1848 and early 1849. And in his version, uh, Jesus supplements to the original commandments, don't steal, don't commit adultery, are changed, I claim, in a much better way than Christ himself. Why? Let me quote what Wagner, in Wagner's version, Christ does with the command, you shall not commit, commit adultery. I quote Wagner. The com Christ speaks here, Wagner's Christ. The commandment says, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you, you shall not marry without love. A marriage without love is broken as soon as entered into. And who so has wood without love already has broken the wedding. End of quote. The shift from Jesus' word is crucial here. For Wagner, the true adultery is not to copulate outside marriage, but to copulate in marriage without love. Why? It's not just a romantic idea we should marry only out of love. The simple adultery just violates the law from outside, while marriage without love destroys it from within, turning the letter of the law against its spirit. So, to paraphrase, to paraphrase Brecht's well-known dictum, what is robbing a bank compared with uh, founding of a new bank? or rather we would say today what is robbing a bank comparing to organizing a good bankruptcy of a bank you know, where you get <laughs> hundreds of billions. What is a simple adultery compared to the adultery that is a loveless marriage? It is not by chance that Wagner's underlying formula, marriage is adultery, recalls Proudhon's property is theft. At that Time, 48, Wagner was a kind of a confused Proudhonian, Bakuninian leftist. So Wagner is radical enough to do the same, also the Proudhonian twist to the idea of you shall not steal. I quote Wagner, this also is a good law. You shall not steal, not covet another man's goods. But I preserve you from the sin in as much as I teach you. Love your neighbor as yourself which also means lay not up for yourself treasures whereby you steal from your neighbor and make, and make him to starve, end of quote. Again, what happens here in both cases? Now comes, please, this is only part when I ask you to listen carefully. Uh, it's the properly Hegelian negation of negation. You have a certain, it's very simplified what I'm saying, Hegel is much more complex, but nonetheless, you start with a certain position, marriage, property. And first, you begin with the external negation, theft, adultery, 
And then the negation of negation is a moment when you realize that this negation is already inscribed into the very universal norm. That property in itself brought to the end already is theft. That marriage in its normal loveless form already is adultery. Just universalized much stronger adultery. And I claim that, uh, that, uh, that this shift from criticizing uh, the distortion of a notion to, move, to realizing that the distortion is already in the notion itself is the basic dialectical move. And this is what confused as they may be, but I wouldn't count too much on it because I think maybe they know more than it appears people on Wall Street what they want. This is, I think, the historical moment. They realize that we are not dealing with mismanagement, abuse of system, that the mismanagement abuse is inscribed into the system itself. Now I want to defend a category which is absolutely crucial for us today along these lines, the category of totality. The tool which allows us to see how violation of a notion is part of the notion itself is totality. Don't forget that totality for Hegel is not an ideal organic whole, but a critical notion. To locate a phenomenon in its totality, into its totality, does not mean to see some hidden harmony of the whole. You know, like things may appear conflictual to us, but if you look from a totality, you see how everything serves a higher goal and so on and so on, that, that uh, you saw it only, your gaze was too narrow. You saw only conflict, you must see the harmony of the all. I think on the contrary, for Hegel, to locate a phenomenon into its totality means to include into a notion, a system, all its distortions, antagonisms, its consistencies as its integral parts. Totality means, what does totality mean? It means, let's go to today's capitalism. It means you want to talk about today's capitalism. Don't talk just about in Fukuyama way, the perfect liberal democratic capitalist idea and then bemoan, oh my God, some countries unfortunately are still out, didn't yet approach it. Totality of capitalism means you want to talk about what would be the ideals. I don't know if they are ideals for you, for me they are not. Scandinavia, they, okay, it is relatively good. Singapore or whatever. Talk also about Haiti, Congo and so on and so on. You see, Hegelian notion of totality, here Adorno was wrong, I think. It's not that the whole is the truth, doesn't mean that oh, totality swallows. No, the whole is the truth means no system is consistent, means what ruins the system, its negativity is not something which accidentally hits, uh, occurs, it's, it's integral part. So, now I'm coming to the second part, at least we forget. How does this work today? I follow here, although I know his knowledge of economy is not exactly the best, but he had at least good sources here. I would like to refer here to some of the recent works by Fred 
Glenson, where she made two very pertinent proposals. The first one is to shift the accent of our reading of Marxist capital to the fundamental structure, structural centrality of unemployment in the text of capital. I quote Fred, unemployment is structurally inseparable from the dynamic of accumulation and expansion which constitutes the very nature of capitalism as such, end of quote. In what is arguably the extreme point of the unity of opposites in the sphere of economy, it is the very success of capitalism, raised productivity and so on, which produces unemployment, rendering more and more workers useless. What should be a blessing, less work needed, becomes a curse. The world market is thus, with regard to its immanent dynamic, a space in which everyone has once been a productive laborer and in which labor has everyone begun to price itself out of the system. That is to say, in the ongoing process of capitalist globalization, the category of unemployed acquires a new quality beyond the classical Marxist notion of the reserve army of labor. One should consider in terms of the category of unemployment, also, I quote Fred, those massive populations around the world who have, as it were, dropped out of history, who have been deliberately excluded from the modernizing projects of first world capitalism and written off as, ho or, as hopeless or terminal cases, so-called failed states or rogue states, Congo, Somalia, victims of famine or ecological disasters, caught in pseudo-archaic ethnic hatreds, objects of philanthropy and NGOs, or often the same people of the war on terror. The category of the unemployed should thus be expanded to encompass a wide span of population from the temporary unemployed through no longer employable and permanently unemployed up to people living in slums and other types of ghettos, all those often dismissed by Marx as lumpen proletarians. And finally, to the whole areas, populations or states excluded from global capitalist process, like the blank spaces in ancient maps. And here I refer to Frank Ruder's book, Ruder's book on rebel. I claim that this extension of the circle of the unemployed brings us a little bit back from Marx to Hegel. Rebel is back, emerging in the very core of emancipatory uh, uh, struggles. We should nonetheless, I think, qualify a little bit, criticize Jameson's deployment of this idea. First, Jameson uh, says then that uh, we have four categories in today's capitalism. Workers, those who still can work, reserve army of the temporary unemployed, the permanently unemployable, and the formerly employed, but now unemployable. I think that uh, the permanently unemployable and formerly employed, I would put them together, and I would add a much more important but crucial category for today's functioning of capitalism, the fourth term should be illegally employed. Those working in conditions of black markets, different markets, different forms of slavery, and so on, and so on. Second, I think that Fred 
fails to emphasize how those excluded are nonetheless included, precisely as excluded. Again, take Congo. Congo is not excluded, my God. Without minerals from Congo, we wouldn't have all the computers, all the stuff that we have. So, you know, exclusion means a certain very specific brutal, br brutal inclusion. Third point, uh, the permanently, the, those who are formally unemployed with new technological development should be supplemented by its opposite, those educated with no chance of finding employment. More and more, a whole generation of students, at least this is our problem in Europe, have almost no chance of finding a corresponding employment, which leads to massive protests. And I think the worst way to resolve this gap would be to directly subordinate education to the demands of the market, which is what we are now trying to do in Europe. Let's go a step further. Jameson adds here another paradoxical but deeply justified step. He characterizes this new structural unemployment as a form of exploitation. Exploited are not, in the old Marxist sense, only workers producing surplus value appropriated by the capital. Exploited are also those who are structurally prevented from getting caught into the capitalist vortex of exploited wage labor, up to whole zones and nations. How then are we to rethink the concept of exploitation? A radical change is needed here. In a properly dialectical twist, exploitation includes its own negation. Exploited are not only those who produce or create, but also those who are, for structural reasons, condemned not to create, prevented to create. The capitalist totality of production not only needs workers, but also generates groups of those who cannot find work. These are not simply outside the circulation of capital. They are actively produced as not working by this circulation. Do you remember the Ninochka joke that I quoted the first day, like coffee without milk is not the same as coffee without cream? So again, this is our coffee without milk. You have to include the unemployed, unemployable, and so on. The next point that Jameson does, and this I think is crucial, maybe you will disagree, but I agree, I'm very critical towards Fred Jameson, but here I agree with him, is that this accent of exploitation, we can clearly grasp its meaning when we oppose it to domination, this favored motive of different versions of the postmodern micropolitics of power. In short, Foucault and Agamben are not enough. All the detailed elaborations of the regulatory power mechanisms of domination, all the wealth of notions like excluded, bare life, homo sacer, and so on, must be grounded in or mediated by the centrality of exploitation. Without this reference to economy, the fight against domination remains, I quote Fred here, an essentially moral or ethical one, which leads to punctual revolts and acts of resistance, rather than to the transformation of the mode of production as such, end of quote. 
The positive program of the ideologies of power is generally the one of some type of direct democracy. The outcome of the emphasis on domination is a democratic program, while the outcome of the emphasis on exploitation is a communist program. Therein resides the limit of describing the third world horrors in the terms of effects of domination. The goal becomes democracy and freedom. Even the reference to imperialism instead of capitalism functions, this is very nice insight by Fred, functions as a case of how an economic category can so easily modulate into a concept of domination. That's why I'm suspicious when, for example, in Latin America, Chavez and some others, rather exclusively, sometimes too exclusively, oppose imperialism. The implication of this shift of accent to domination is the belief into another alternate modernity in which capitalism will function in a more fair way, without domination. What this notion of domination fails to see is that only in capitalism is exploitation naturalized, inscribed into the functioning of economy. It is not the result of extra economic violence, and this is why in capitalism we get personal freedom and equality. There is no need for direct social domination. Domination is already in the structure of the production process. This is also why the category of surplus value is crucial here. Marx always emphasizes that the exchange between workers and capitalists is just in the sense that the worker, as a rule, gets paid the full value of his her labor power as a commodity. There is no direct exploitation here. That is, uh, so it's not that workers are not paid the full value of the commodity they are selling to the capitalists. So while in a market economy I remain de facto dependent, this dependency is nonetheless civilized, enacted in the form of a free market exchange between me and other persons. It is easy to ridicule Ayn Rand, but there is, I think, a grain of truth in the famous hymn to money from her Atlas Shrugged, a short quote, if you permit me the obscenity. <laughs> Until and unless you discover that money is the root of all good, you ask for your own destruction. When money ceases to become the means by which men deal with one another, then men become the tools of other men. Blood, whips, and guns, or dollars. Take your choice, there is no other. Of course, crazy ideology, but haha, did Marx not say something similar in his well-known formula of how in the universe of commodities, relations between people assume the form of relations between things. In the market economy, relations between people can appear as relations of mutually recognized free equal people. Domination is no longer directly enacted, visible as such. The liberal answer to domination is recognition. Recognition becomes a stake in a multicultural settlement by which various groups, uh, in a peaceful way, electorally divide up the spoils. The subject of recognition are not classes. It is meaningless to demand the recognition of proletariat as a collective subject. If anything, fascism does this. The whole point of fascism is kind of mutual recognition of classes. 
Subjects of recognition are race, gender, and so on. The politics of recognition remains within the bourgeois civil society framework. What is, of course, I'm a Marxist, problematic in Ayn Rand is her underlying premise that the only choice between the only, the only choice between direct and indirect relations of domination and exploitation, that this is the only choice we have is between direct domination and exploitation, money and so on. Alternatives are dismissed as utopian. However, one should nonetheless bear in mind the moment of truth in Rent's otherwise ridiculously ideological claim. The great lesson of the state socialist Socialism effectively was that a direct abolishment of private property and market regulated exchange, lacking concrete forms of direct social regulation of the process of production, necessarily resuscitates direct relations of servitude and exploitation. I mean, this is not a ridiculous problem. Let's face it, the attempts to move out of the market did, as a rule, bring extremely forceful relations of direct uh, servitude and domination. What further complicates the situation is that the very rise of blank spaces in global capitalism is itself a proof that capitalism can no longer afford universal civil order of freedom and democracy. This is maybe what gives us some hope. I claim that here we should also go further from Marx. Marx's ideal was this purely democratic exploitation. We are all equal, just you buy my labor force, I, I am exploited. But today I claim isn't the whole lesson of new forms of apartheid and so on that capitalism will be less and less able to sustain this liberal democratic equality freedom as a true even to try seriously to impose it as a universal forum. So strange things are happening. Marx explained in a nice way that why the paradox of why in England was so successful in its development of capitalism. His idea was that, in a naively personalized way, of course, the British bourgeoisie was intelligent enough to guess that if they were to take political power directly, it would be inefficient, they would get involved in, in constant uh, factional struggles. So they were wise enough to concede to old aristocracy to leave to them political power. The insight was that maybe aristocracy as political power is the best representative of political interest of capital as such. What if, this would be my evil reading, something similar, we may say, is happening in China today? That the new Chinese bourgeoisie got the wise insight, don't push too much towards democracy, maybe. The Communist Party of China, the way it is today, is the best representative of collective interests of the capital, which is maybe even literally true. When I was in China, a friend five, ten minutes, if you give me. A friend showed me a wonderful document. You know, as every Communist Party, Chinese also have its sacred book, the history of the Communist Party. And a friend of mine, Wang Hui, well, uh, 
showed me two editions, an older one and a new one. And one chapter disappeared. A very honorable chapter about how, in those couple of years of relative prosperity, at least in the area around Shanghai, late 20s, early 30s, before uh, Japanese invasion, Communist Party played a very honorable role of organizing workers, trade unions demanding. That chapter disappeared because, like, it may give wrong ideas for today. No, that Communist Party should, uh, should do something like this. So, all I'm saying with this, I admit it, obscene reference to, now I'm coming to the conclusion, to Ayn Rand, is that in today's left, the problem of determinate negation returns with a vengeance. What new positive order should replace the old one, the day after, when the sublime enthusiasm of the uprising is over? I think, no, really, I think that, now, since this is the difficult question, of course, I don't have an answer, so I will have to improvise briefly. But not this, I think I have something. First, I totally agree with what was said here. We, intellectuals, theorists, don't have an answer. We are not what in Lacanian terminology can be called the subject supposed to know. And it's tragic because even if people make fun of us, they nonetheless somehow expect it of us. Like uh, two days ago, I got an email because we in Slovenia also had occupy our own street, whatever, not wall. Uh, uh, a letter from a guy who told me, I admire your work. You're a true intellectual. It's crucial at this moment. Could you please quickly, maximum in two days, send me a detailed exact program of what we should do in next days, in next month, and so on. I was, in a way, flattered, but very sad, you know. But at the same time that we don't have the answer, we nonetheless, let's nonetheless not play this game. We don't have an answer. We should learn from the people or whatever. My favorite anecdote here is one uh, uh, reported to me by Terry Eagleton some decades ago, uh, Eric Hobsbawm, the great British communist historian, visited a factory and to give to workers a talk, you know, when in the late 60s this was still fashionable in the Maoist mode. And he was so terrorized, Eric Hobsbawm, to assert his authority. He started with, I'm not here to teach you. On the contrary, I will learn from you. We are here just to exchange opinions, blah, blah. And one of the workers did a masterful thing. He, in these brutal words, with these brutal words, cut him short. Fuck off. You are making fun of us. You had the privilege of learning. It's your duty. You have to teach us, and so on, and so on. So, you know, people have the right to expect from us some kind of, if not guidance, at least, how should I call it, the explanation, articulation of circumstances and so on. This easy reliance, pseudo-Maoist, although it's questioned to what extent it's pseudo, reliance on people is utterly false. I'm sorry to tell you, no, people do not know what they want. There is no, not only we do not know, but people also do not know. You know, let's not do what Heidegger did. 
This is the perfect formula of relying on the people. You know that in 34, when Heidegger was called to Berlin, he uh, explained his, uh, his solution not to go in a disgustingly wonderful short text called Warum in the province Bleiben. Why do we have to, why do I stay in the provinces? Here is, it's disgusting. The last quote then, look, I am coming to the end. Uh, recently I got Heidegger, a second invitation to teach at the University of Berlin. On that occasion, I left Freiburg and withdraw to the cabin, that hut. I listened, he has many uses of this Todd Nauberg hut. You know, when he wanted to drop Hannah Arendt, he also, this hut enters, like now my great masculine duty to do the masterwork takes priority and you as a woman should make the great sacrifice of disappearing and I go to the hut without you. Okay, let's go on. <laughs> uh, I listened to what the mountains and the forest and the farmlands were saying. <laughs> and I went to see an old friend of mine, a 75-year-old farmer. He had read about the call to Berlin in the newspapers. He knew which answer Heidegger wanted and politely provided it, no? Because he knew that. So uh, in contrast to such elevation of authentic ordinary people, which is extremely patronizing, I claim that we should insist that neither they nor we. So in other words, now, how would you put it? I don't know correct German. Let's not ask the ordinary people, uh, sollen wir in Wall Street bleiben or whatever, and then we would get from a common policeman, haha, there or cleaning lady, you know, like, like this authentic Hedegarian <laughs> gesture. We both don't know, which doesn't mean that, that we should not in some sense learn from the people. It's, I think the situation, although I hate this, parallels is much closer to something like uh, maybe the analytic session where the analytic pretends to know what the analysant works but doesn't and nonetheless although he doesn't know by assuming this illusory point somehow in a purely formal structural way allows the analysant to uh, somehow to clarify to clarify his uh, position. So to conclude, there is a difficult problem here. As it was already said here, Wall Street, we should not terrorize them with, but what do you want? This is how ideology functions today. Much more dangerous than all those uh, conservative bullshitters, ah, lazy people who dirty, who are too stupid, lazy to get a proper job are there. Much more dangerous is the clinching tactics. By clinching, I mean like in box, you know, when you don't want to confront the enemy, you embrace him. It's the, the big clinching fighter, Bill Clinton. Did you read his, I cannot avoid from reading it, his judgment on David Letterman's show, I think. Clinton said that protests are, on balance, a positive thing. But then he articulated his worries about the nature of the cause. Quote, Clinton, they need to be for something specific, not just against something, because if you are against something, someone else will feel the vacuum you create. 
My God, of course, that's why we need the vacuum that someone else will feel it. He said, I quote, Clinton suggested the protesters go behind President Obama's jobs plan, which he claimed would create a couple million jobs in the next year and a half, and so on and so on. So you see, uh, this is our situation. On the one hand, let's be clear. We cannot, I don't take too seriously all that stuff, although it's beautiful. Horizontal organization, new solidarity, and so on. It's wonderful to practice it. We should. But this is what I meant when I said on Wall Street, don't fall in love with yourself. But let's be clear. At a certain moment, we need new efficiency, new master signifiers, and so on and so on. Otherwise, this no will just become a kind of negative theological no. You know, not this, no that. Everything that you do will uh, somehow betray the purity of the protest, and so on and so on. And generally, we know what we want, my God. It is true, as you, Susan, said yesterday, that we should abandon or imply class struggle, essentialism, and include feminism, anti-racism, and so on. But isn't it that this was done in the 80s? And today, what I like is nonetheless that while we definitely, I agree with you, should stick to the absolute crucial importance of anti-racist struggle, feminist struggles, whatever you want, but nonetheless, capitalism is re-emerging as the central problem. This, I think, is, is a great achievement. So on the one hand, we will have to, we will be pressed by, as people already today in Greece, to translate it into concrete demands. But all the temporality of emancipatory movement emerges here. Let's not be this project of decision. Here I agree with you, Susan, and everyone else. And with, as Alain would have put it, needs its own time temporality. If we are pushed into it too early, it means we are recap recuperated. Because before we elaborate the new field, to say now means to use the terms of, because we are not now in the empty air. We are within the ruling, within the field dominated by a ruling ideology. So what I would, just now, three minutes. Uh, what, what I would say is a couple of lessons here. First, Nonetheless, do not underestimate the strength of some well-chosen particular demands. You know, there are moments, I myself know it, of political struggle when an apparently radical opposition is easily tolerated by those in power because they know practically it doesn't mean a lot. My own experience from the last decade of, maybe you, Sretch, also would confirm me, of, no, you're too young, actually, of, of, <laughs> of, 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 of uh, communist regime in Yugoslavia. It was absolutely easy to be totally anti-Marxist, you know, to say Marxism, totalitarianism, everything is already in Marx, and then, as some other people, they like to go back, in Rousseau, in Plato, and my favorite guy here here's are, Adorno and Horkheimer, basically they are saying everything is here with the first magicians in, in prehistory, you know, who started to manipulate. So all this you were allowed to say. You were allowed to develop in detail how, if anything, Yugoslav self-management, communism is worse than Soviet man. Because there at least 
you have a direct party nomenclatura rule, you know who is the enemy. With us, it's all confused. But if you ask something very specific, like change this law, do that, do this, it was considered much more dangerous. And here, please believe me, I have no illusions about Obama. But nonetheless, although, and I know how his health care reform was compromised by the result. But nonetheless, I claim that the debate made it clear that she did touch a traumatic point there. The very core of what freedom, how freedom is mystified, you know, because, in the, because you know that the basic uh, Republican argument was they want to take from us our freedom to choose and so on and so on. So, you know, don't just w wait in the void. In between, we should, and here enters political wisdom, from time to time engage in very specific particular demands. Why? Because if they are well chosen, it's clear that we are dealing with something which is possible. They cannot say it's impossible, you are dreaming. It's a very simple, precise demand. So there, it's not we who are irrational, we want communism now. It's their resistance, which can be very successfully presented as irrational. This is one thing. The other thing is that we can also use these strategic demands to mobilize people. They can be strategic in the sense of they are not the final cause that we are fighting for. Permit me here my last obscenity, I cannot survive without it. If you saw, I'm sorry if some of you know this joke story, in the British working class movie, I think I even, yes, my God, I quoted it the first day, brushed off, no? You know that wonderful dialogue between Ewan McGregor and the, the lady there, no? She invites him home, would you like to come up for a coffee? He says, I'm sorry, but I don't drink coffee. And he sa she says, sorry, he says, she says, no problem, I don't have any coffee, no? I mean, it's wonderful eroticization just by a double negation. <laughs> it's, there is, uh, uh, sex is not meant, she just offers something and then says, but it doesn't matter. And it means, sorry for obscenity, screw my brains out of me or whatever, no? <laughs> this is how we should do it. We made a point, like, join us to do this. People say, oh, but it's not really that we care about that, then we can say it doesn't matter. We also don't care, just join us. You know, like something. We should practice all these things. So uh, just really to conclude, this is, you know, Clinton was very precise. Clinton is a big manipulator here. Already I remember at C in Seattle, she said, no, we should hear the voice. She likes <laughs> to play. We should hear the voice out there of what they are saying, no? And, uh, no, we, and if you ask me now, what is this divine violence terror? It's the terror of remaining silent here, of nothing. Here we have an attempt where, not the Republican, uh, not people, but they don't matter. Okay, they do matter, but not central. Where sooner or later we already have attempts of part of American bourgeois nomenclatura playing the clinching game, you know? Oh, but there is something in your protest. Let's talk reasonable and so on and so on. The act of violence and terror here, I claim, is not to kill back, just to, at some point, you also have to do nothing in the sense of refusing a dialogue. 
In this sense, you insist, no, we don't talk because talking now means talking in your terms. In this sense, no talk is a space of public reason of, it's not an irrational no, it's a space which opens up, it's opening up for the public use of reason. My message, our message to them should be, you know how identified I passed to this imperial majesty, we, our, okay, message to them should be, uh, uh, if you, whatever we say now, you will be able to twist it into your constraints. Like if we say we want more justice, yeah, we need a new legislation on, on banks, whatever, no, but uh, you can take it all from us. But we are, if we are silent, you cannot take this silence from us. And this is what terrifies you. I'm sorry if I was too long, but that's life. Thank you very much. Mm -hmm. No, no. My old joke, don't use your energy to applause. When we communists take over, you will need it to make this official applause. You know? <laughs> Keep your energy for them. You know? Please. Uh, um, we still can go. No, I think a little bit. Yeah. So I have, is, is the mic here? Is it on? Um, I have a, qu a question. Right after your question, if, if it's, it's constructive, is the mic is on or okay. not? Okay. No. Um, the question is is kind of a, just a comment. I wanted to see what you think about this. It has to do with your claim that for the oppressed, violence is always legitimate but never necessary. That a group is oppressed does not mean that it's incapable of fetishizing violence or starting to get off on violence. Um, and if that's the case, right, if the fact oh, that one is, is able to fetishize and also. because of that, then that would say that, it, that violence then cannot always be legitimate for even the oppressed. Additionally, that one is oppressed does not mean that the violence that one uses is also not used against other oppressed people. So I think that, I mean, I'd like to hear you say more about this, I mean, basically kind of qualify or say something more about the claim that it's always legitimate. That doesn't seem right. Always legitimate against the oppressors, of course. I hope this was, uh, sorry, I hope this was understood. No, what I'm saying is this, I'm ready to concede all that you are saying. I'm even ready to say critically in a very friendly way of Alain when he says that, you know, the violence of communist regime was mimetic on no, fuck it. The tragedy is that it was in a way much worse. It was not mimetic. I don't see anything in Western liberal democracy, at least done to their own people, what they did in colonies in our story, that could even closely come up to Stalinist purges of 30. Sorry, they were, whatever you say about Stalinist purges of 36, 7, sorry, they were not mimetic of bourgeois violence, no? Bourgeois violence was done in a different way. Even if you look at the worst cases, like, you know, from Congo 100 years ago, and I'm deeply suspicious of this example of Congo. You know why? Because it's a small uh, uh, solidarity with you. I hope your grandparents were doing it there. No? no, because, you know, Congo is a small country. And I read somewhere how all big imperial countries had the interest to sacrifice a small country, to, to paint them, sacrifice them as a... So, uh, no, no, I'm well aware of these dangers. I just think that, nonetheless, we should take into account the fact, this is what matters to me, that 
we already live, here I remain a Marxist, we already live in conditions of violence. The existing system already implies violence, reproduces it through violence. So that would be my point. Every, uh, our violence is by definition always uh, reactive violence. Now, these questions that you raised up, of course, are extremely serious. Precisely because, again, you know, what Alain does there is for me a little bit too easy, like, ah, ah, blame it on the enemy, you know. It's not really ours, it's just unfortunately, no, it is specifically ours. Let, let's cut the bullshit. Like, as I try to develop something like Stalinist monster trials, you even don't find them in fascism. In fascism, you cannot even imagine a trial against Jews where they would confess Jewish plot and so on. It's totally meaningless. I stop. I agree with your point. Um, first, just a point about Clinton and to add to what you're saying. In 99, he said, oh, we want to hear the voices. And then he refused to go to Seattle because it was too dangerous on the ground. Um, the I guess maybe you already addressed this, but just for my own clarification, would you say that the <clears throat> doing this theoretical work, articulating uh, the what's going on and then the silence on the ground, would, would you see these as identified and to maybe just push it further, is public use of reason an example of divine violence as yeah. such? That's kind yeah, of... This yeah. is for me, because you know, for me, I, I don't buy, in, I know, okay, I'll put it like this very briefly. I know that there are tendencies, I will not name names, I want precisely to remain ominous. There are tendencies in today's cultural studies and so on, where first, you know, Benjamin is one of the sacred cows. So it's practically not the one to be criticized. So what then to do with divine violence? Uh, we find it's something similar as with Franz Fanon, a kind of, uh, sublimated, subli sublimization, rather decaffeinization of this violence. Like, it's such a radical violence that it, it's not really nobody is hurt. It's just some kind of a mega violent, purely metaphysical shift and so on. No, here we should be clear, my God. Benjamin talks about revolutionary violence and so on. He, oh, so this is my first point. Uh, sorry, what was your... Uh, uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, and, uh, and, uh, but I want to emphasize that what I mean by violence, it's even primarily not killing people. It's just this sometimes needed breakdown of communication when it is hegemonized by the opponent. We shouldn't be afraid of this. Let's not be too Habermasians, no? Like, uh, or even we can even put it in Habermasian terms. If we engage in communication with them now, it would have meant a, a communication distorted with through power relations and so on and so on. So. Uh, I, I really appreciated the comments a lot and therefore uh, gives me an uh, entry into an area that I th don't think uh, we've, we've articulated in its, in its uh, not just, it's not a question of proper, just actual, yeah. in its actuality, and that is what uh, feminism has to do here, what the women's movement, and what I, I, th I would like to add, I mean, on the one hand, 
it's very interesting to look at the problem of adultery. If I had had more time to talk about the case of uh, Henry Beecher's and this woman. This is the one of Uncle Sam? No. No, this is no, the Uncle Sam. Sorry, Uncle no, no, Tom. this is the one who uh, who spoke. Uh, this is the issue. The uh, Henry Ward Beecher, who was the minister, who committed adultery with this woman, Elizabeth Tilden, and it was only she who was punished for adultery. Where do we hear that today? It's also in Sharia law. Only the woman is published uh, punished for adultery. That's on the one hand. The second hand is that. There is a category called marital rape. Yeah. And you seem to think that it's adultery just to, be, to have sex in a marriage. It could be a case of marital rape. And that is a category that has uh, a, a lot of theoretical clout behind it. OK, so that on that. Okay. But then if you take it a step further, the, the idea is not to include postmodernity, include racism, as if these are subcategories of the struggle. No, what you're missing here is that for at least 20 years, 30 years, in the case of post-colonial thinking since the 1960s, there have been first an attempt to fight against the enemy. The enemy would have to beat men and therefore to criticize males' ways of doing things. And then women decided that's really silly. It doesn't change the situation. And women were taking a cue from post-colonial uh, yeah. theorists who were looking to talking with each other about different issues that had nothing to do with men. I mean, just leave them out. And women in the women's movement were extremely progressive very early, earlier than the European intellectuals, at going to a global uh, uh, constituency to listen and to work together. You will find feminists who have solidarity around the globe and not just in the Beijing uh, Hillary Clinton stuff, but really, really significant kinds of solidarity. And I think they provide a model for the movement today that is w well in advance of the problems with the party that we've been talking about a lot. So I would, because this is about, I mean, the, the women are in this strange situation of intimacy and violence that are totally superimposed. And the fact of economic survival, which is, as you say, marriage is about property. So uh, all of these aspects have been dealt with in very different ways, uh, in ways that haven't had much hearing here. And I just at least want to bring them in in the last moments, because they're an extremely important uh, contribution to the whole issue of what it is to organize, what it is to make demands, what it is not to make demands that are easily co-opted in a democratic frame, which I totally agree with you. You're absolutely right. To uh, the, the biggest co-option danger right now is the democratic frame. I thought that was really brilliant. Uh, I'm very grateful to what you said. Don't be afraid, I will be short, because basically I totally agree with you. I'm sorry if, in my usual polemic exaggeration, I appeared as, you know, let's return to the golden era of 30s, 40s, where you said to women, to blacks, all problems will be, uh, wait a little bit, you, you, know, you know the strategy. No, no, I totally agree with you. The only thing I would like to add is that, let's take, for example, post-colonial struggle. It has, for me, a certain ambiguity, not that I'm opposed to it, absolutely for it, but in this sense that 
there is a certain post-colonial rhetorics which can also be up to a point anti-emancipatory. You know, this standard strategy of, for example, in some countries, like in India, when I was there, this is what shocked me. I think I already used this example here. I said, what about castes? They told me, oh, oh, when you are against caste, this is uh, cultural imperialism, you are, uh, uh, you are taking from us the core of our identity, blah, 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 and so on. So all I'm saying is not to subordinate post-colonial struggle to some kind of a vague anti-capitalist struggle or whatever, but to claim that nonetheless the anti-capitalist emancipation, maybe I'm already saying too much, I'm not sure, I'm just trying to save my skin against it, is that the anti-capitalist struggle provides a criterion on maybe on how to distinguish in post-colonial struggle what is its fake form in the sense of preventing to recuperate it into into, into into its predominant form and so on. Now you will say, but does the same also not go the other way around? That is to say, you can have a workers' movement which is extremely uh, racist and so on. We know that this is not a myth. In many European countries, it's the, the, the capitalists who are for much more for free emigration than the working class. But not to look, take too much time, I would nonetheless insisted that, uh, that uh, uh, okay, I will be here a Maoist, you know, Mao said something wonderful here, I don't criticize Mao, where he says he in a way reinvented, Althusser was here right, a certain logic of over-determination, where he said, this is the formula, it may appear a pure sophism, but I think it works. Mao said, of course, the main struggle is workers, farmers struggle, whatever you call it, communist struggle. But then he said, in specific situations, you have to privilege another struggle, like the struggle against Japanese occupation whatsoever. And then he says something very interesting. He says, in such conditions, for example, of Japanese occupation, to claim, no, no, occupation doesn't really matter, we should still do our communist struggle, is strictly wrong from the long-term interest of the communist struggle itself. So something similar I would like to say that it's absolutely not incompatible with my interests, not only to say women's struggle and so on are also important, but sometimes they can be the absolutely focal point. I would like to have great great plasticity here. The predominance of anti-capitalist struggle doesn't mean we talk, we somehow, that other struggles are somehow uh, secondary or whatever, no? So I am well aware of your problem. What I'm only saying is something that the one who is not very popular, Walter, Walter Ben Michaels, once said that, you know, although, that's my critical point about all those race, gender, religion, or what struggled it, although they officially claimed, yeah, yeah, class struggle is one in the series of race, gender, class, de facto class was absent. It, 
It simply, we simply didn't have a true chain included class. Not only this, often, even with feminist struggle, marginal but nonetheless, the feminist position, a certain bourgeois feminism, had the secret class connotation. To be brutal, who are those self-humiliating women uh, caught in poor working class women? You know, there was, a, he will, you will strike back, please. Come here so that people hear your attack on me. When you are finished. I am. The moment you raise your hat, how can another, one? There's, there's there's another question. Oh, yeah, sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, please. Are you there, lady, for the question? I was there, lady, for the question, I was. Um, I came here with an, to hear you generously, and I've read you thoroughly, and I'm very pleased that I've come. But I also had a thought that has been resting in the back of my mind for a long time. And I remember only too well the year 1968 when the world exploded and the old left had virtually nothing to say. The gap was extraordinary. There were few amazing crossover people from the Frankfurt School and so forth who grasped the ontological moment even mystifiably, but they, they struggled with that issue and that had something to say. I feel we're in the same moment and I'm not altogether sure what I heard all this lovely weekend. Um, isn't suffering from that same dislocation. And I think the, the essence of the problem, if I, and I'm sitting here struggling with the thought that I might be the last speaker or the last point, and that's a dreadful position. No, no, but, you be the last, okay, so Etienne will yeah, do yeah. this for me. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> okay, but um, it's. But you can graciously accept. The, the, the response to the response. The okay, the, the, this was the, in a, the refusal to talk about the resistance. If the 1% is still going to be a carrying cry, it represents 7 million people. 7 million people who are now the oligarchy of the world, who are tensely, interpersonally um, rivalrous, who are, are searching among themselves how to take the last of the world's resources into their own hands and so forth. They're a very vigorous, not even maybe so perfectly self-identified group. But there is a couple of things about them that is quite striking. They always marry the military, always. And they always turn any political apparatus into a security state apparatus, always. Do you still think that the negation of the negation is when the military and the security state apparatus um, converts? converts to a position where they reflect on the needs of everyone else and actually turn around. Is that the revolutionary moment? The second question, and don't just answer yes. Okay. The second question is, do you still believe in reappropriation? Reappropriation of all that mass wealth that's being privatized at such fantastic rates. And then how would you talk about that to this generation? No, precisely my answer is to the second one is not yes. Again, please take seriously what I say. All I'm saying is that capitalism is approaching a certain deadlock. Things can no longer go on indefinitely the way they are. The true utopia is this. When you mention this reappropriation, I'm here much more critical because I claim Marx, when he proposes this formula of alienation, reappropriation, is caught in a certain reading of Hegel, subject alienation, collective subject, reappropriates it, which I think is not Hegel's position. And this has also concrete political consequences. I don't like to think about 
whatever it will be called, revolution and so on, on this level, alienation, reappropriation. The other thing you said, you know, for me, this is an open field of strategic uh, considerations, like in Bolivia and so on. Sorry, there can be cases where military apparatus can play in a concrete situation a progressive role. Here, probably not. Although it's interesting to note that, at least among the ordinary soldiers, isn't it that the majority of them now come from lower classes? Because, but what this means, I don't know. So, no, I'm of course aware of the traps. I'm not saying that, if you understood me in this way, that return to the struggle for, uh, uh, for state power and simply, we simply use the existing army and state apparatuses to our own goal. Of course this doesn't work. If it, but uh, now I will say something horrible and to conclude. But are you or anyone here ready to accept that nonetheless, if at some point we will come close to taking over, that we will need a repressive apparatus? <laughs> this is the question. And then the, pro okay, but what you said at the beginning, maybe this is the real difference. You said 68 and so on. I claim it's clear to see the, the, the maybe the best, most efficient ideological operation that we witnessed is how 68 was recuperated in France, in other countries, even here into the ruling ideology, how, you know, it was first reduced to some kind of inner change, uh, psychological, authentic, and so on, uh, uh, all that. So I would say that maybe I'm wrong, but the least it can be said when you said, haha, today we are, like in 68, we philosophers giving you, I claim maybe it's just, in my view, the opposite. Maybe the 68ers are the one who really cannot say anything pertinent today. Maybe the greatest danger is to precisely read this protest as a repetition of 68. I think it's not. Maybe I'm wrong, but my thesis. Now, at the end, my God, somebody has to le point de capiton, you know. No, no, I'm afraid this will sound very skeptic. It was my intention to ask uh, uh, permission from the um, uh, organizers and uh, more precisely from the uh, chairperson of this session to uh, uh, read uh, um, a commentary that I uh, received this morning from my friend Emmanuel Wallerstein on Occupy Wall Street, which I found very illuminating. But uh, maybe this is abusive because... Uh, Funny question, how long it is? <laughs> it's two pages, but, uh, but you'll read it on the, uh, on, the, on the web. That's even e uh, so easier. It's posted. Yes, you, you, Google, you Google Wallerstein commentaries, and this was posted yesterday. As you know, he uh, writes commentaries uh, twice a month, which are posted on his uh, website. Sometimes they are dull and, uh, and, uh, and banal, and sometimes they're quite clever, and I think that this one is not too bad. Now, uh, 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 given that I don't read it, uh, <laughs> I suggest uh, uh, a final uh, reflection on the issue of negation and negation, and I'm very happy that uh, uh, this was mentioned uh, in the uh, previous intervention, uh, which is um, 
suggested to me by uh, uh, what you said uh, just a minute ago about Mao uh, um, um, principal and secondary uh, uh, contradictions. I want to add an ironic tr uh, twist to that. Um, starting with the speculative dimension, I think that one of the most fascinating problems we have uh, whenever we uh, um, res resort to, to, to the uh, um, uh, dialectical scheme of the negation of the negation, which is always a way, of course, of trying to articulate politics with history, uh, uh, continuity with discontinuity, etc., uh, is uh, uh, if we want to make practical uh, 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 applications of that, and of course Hegel was himself never shy of doing that, and neither was Marx, uh, we face the choice of deciding which is the first negation and which is the second. I mean, which is the uh, uh, external uh, uh, negation and which is uh, uh, the uh, uh, truly uh, uh, internal negation. And of course, <coughs> if you already have a, a, a representation of world history in, uh, in mind, or if you have a, a certain, uh, uh, in fact, pre-established uh, uh, picture of the progress of mankind, uh, you 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 just follow what uh, the succession the chronological succession suggests or some uh, more abstract equivalent of that but if you're in the middle of politics uh, that becomes uh, a, a little bit more difficult. And from this point of view, of course, Mao's use of the uh, uh, primary and the, sec and the secondary uh, uh, contradiction is, is, is very interesting because you can very well know, you can very well imagine behind Mao's back, you know, he's not the last speaker. You can imagine behind Mao's back another uh, dialectician, another philosopher, Let's call him Deng Xiaoping, for example. Who would say the following right from the beginning? Uh, the principal contradiction is the imperial or imperialist contradiction, whereby China, which has been over uh, uh, several centuries, and especially the 19th century, reduced to the role of a miserable, exploited, split, uh, uh, humiliated uh, 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 country must regain not only its independence, not only its sovereignty, but its central role in world affairs. It is China that should be the center of the world. It should not be the United States. Uh, now this Mao Zedong is uh, 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 suggesting that um, the um, uh, communist idea, should become the guiding uh, uh, idea. And the ultimate objective will be through the imperialist uh, 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 struggle, secondary uh, uh, contradiction, to in the end reach the communist uh, uh, goal of uh, liberating the poor, the peasants, uh, uh, the workers, etc., etc., from capitalist exploitation. He sees that as a long-term objective, etc., etc. Let him believe that. Uh, let him believe that. Let people, let the masses, let the masses believe, believe that the ultimate goal is communism. Uh, let them even believe, because they are intelligent, that the, 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 the complicated path is over anti-imperialist uh, 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 struggle to, uh, through anti-imperialist anti struggle, to 
the final and essential uh, uh, um, uh, uh, struggle, which is anti-capitalist. Uh, this is excellent. Uh, this is excellent because only a communist ideology will succeed in uh, uh, getting us rid of uh, uh, imperialist domination. And it will be do more than that. It will put in power a very powerful centralized uh, 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 power structure called the Communist Party, which in the end will prove the best possible state uh, 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 machine to implement capitalism in China and make China again what China has to do namely the dominant superpower in the world. This is the re real way to calculate the relationship between uh, external and internal negation, secondary and uh, uh, principal uh, uh, contradiction. Now, most of the time, uh, this is, uh, I'm sorry, this is a very disgusting way of uh, 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 twisting the, uh, <laughs> ironically, your, uh, your point of view. Uh, so I would very much agree with you. You, you frequently refer to the notion of Pascalian Wager or, or things like that. Uh, in actual politics, uh, we need to, to choose. That is, we need to Wager. Uh, but we have no uh, 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 ultimate certainty that the final goal is, uh, uh, um, or the final result, not the final goal, yeah. but the final result of the negation of the negation will be the communist idea or will be uh, uh, nationalism, uh, uh, etc. And this is where Alain is, uh, is, is, is not naive, but he's... he's He's, he's weak, I mean, in, in, in a sense, because he's firmly convinced that there's something absolutely intrinsic in the notion of communism that guarantees, one way or another, that this is the ultimate telos, uh, like it or not. Uh, and uh, 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 I don't think we have any certainty of that kind, but that doesn't prevent any of us from, of course, wagering for communism and not for nationalism or imperialism. Can I extremely short, because this is so, in I'm so sad, my God. You see, the real debate should be Hegel, forget about, okay. Listen, first, I, just an ironic remark. Uh, I find it nonetheless strange to apply your notion how what appears as apparent just secondary at the end becomes means. So would you say then, this is pure irony, bad joke, that uh, we should beware as communists of feminism because we will discover that feminists who support communism really want just feminine rule and <laughs> it's strange to, but this is evil, okay. No, I agree. Sorry. Bad taste. I agree. Yeah, yeah. For, yeah, yeah. First, let me tell you how deeply I agree with you because I had similar problems. I proposed a thesis which goes, sorry, along what you said, for which Alain was relatively furious at me. I told him, what if in this Hegelian retroactive list der Vernunft, cunning of reason, Cultural revolution was a shock therapy to lay the foundations for Deng Xiaoping. Because cultural revolution, what it is, erased traditional points of reference, brutal clearing of the table, when, as we learned from Naomi Klein, then you can come with communism. But what makes Slavoj, me... Slavoj, 
This was Debray's argument about 68, and it's a strong argument. Yeah. Oh, you know? agree. It was yeah. exactly Regis Debray's argument uh, 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 about 68. 68 okay. cleared the way for uh, 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 neoliberal uh, uh, yeah. hedonism, etc., etc., in the name of, of course, something uh, uh, radically anti-authoritarian uh, uh, and uh, demo. I don't buy that. I, I do not agree. But I don't agree totally, but okay. Now, let me make the most important point for which we don't have time. I think this reversal that you present, first, you know better than me probably that it's very, the main thing that follows from this to me is that definitely Hegel's negation of negation should not be treated as a kind of abstract formal dialectical law to be applied as a rubber stamp. But the interesting point is that the process that you described you set up an official goal, and then the reversal is that what appears as a means of this goal turns into proper goal. This is, for me, the perfect example of what Hegel names Lis der Vernunft and, uh, and uh, negation of negation. This is negation of negation. When the, the negation of negation of communism is that when you have this precisely the reversal that you described. Hege Hegelian notion is not that something that appears a goal is a means to some higher goal, really. No, it's that the, and Hegel even says this already at the level of production, where he says, we think, even Marx repeats Hegel here, you know, when Hegel says, we experience production as servicing our needs. But the true goal of production is its own reproduction and only... So, in other words, I cannot just restrain, I conclude now literally, to congratulate you to pro for providing a truly, precisely, with this possibility of list der Vernunft, how, what appeared as a means, we need strong party to install communism, then this reversal as a absolutely perfect example of a Hegelian reversal. And I unfortunately tend to agree with it. wants me to say a, a closing word, but um, I really think that, you know, there, we, there's no need to conclude, but rather to, to see if this can be continued in other forums or in other places or in other times uh, or in other formats, and to thank again everybody who made this possible materially has been working for, you know, the past three days and for the audience for, you know, participating and also for those who are watching. Um, I don't have any great, you know, oh, final words. All I can words, do is but. to repeat your great actor and politician Arnold Schwarzenegger from Terminator. How does he say when he burns? I'll be back. <laughs> we will be back. Thank you very much. <laughs>